Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy podcast. I'm Ashley Mueller. This week's episode explores some of the latest global issues affecting peace, security, and international cooperation. As coronavirus continues to circle the planet, we discuss strengthening prevention measures with better anticipation strategies by looking at three case studies with Ms. Emily Monroe, Head of Strategic Anticipation at the GCSP. And as stability becomes more of a challenge as tensions remain high, we discuss issues facing the Indo-Pacific region with Professor Michiro Tsuroka of Kaio University in Japan. This interview was recorded on the 1st of May, 2020. Welcome, Emily Monroe, Head of Strategic Anticipation at the GCSP. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Ashley. Emily, you have recently produced a publication, a strategic security analysis at the GCSP on strengthening prevention with better anticipation, COVID-19 and beyond, which is available on the GCSP website. My first question to you is, what are the key lessons from the three case studies you mentioned in your publication? Well, I look at three different ones, as you mentioned, COVID-19, the Sahel, and the Arctic. And the first lesson I would draw is invest in anticipation. It pays off and act on those results when you do that process. Um, So that can mean adapting your mindset about how the future may unfold. Uh, And there is help for you for this. There's a host of tools and techniques and strategic foresight that can help you. The second one is address the interconnections. That uh, might seem um, easier uh, than, than it is. It is actually hard. Um, So that means, though, reaching out to actors in different domains and conducting analysis that really maps out the multiple issue interconnections and what their consequences might mean for policy. The third one is acknowledge that vulnerabilities do exist. Surprise will still occur, and you need to prepare for it in the form of building capacity and crisis management, maybe broadening your perspective on the different types of crises that can occur, um, but then also learning from those that do. So this buzzword of resilience, learn from different crises that can occur. I would just emphasize that it's really about an issue of acting early enough to avoid the escalation of problems. Um, Capitalize on opportunities more effectively if you can do that. So contrast, uh, I contrast the situation in the Sahel, which is acute, um, where the international community is really already playing catch up, to the one in the Arctic, where there might be still time to act on on many of those consequences, the larger human or environmental consequences that are emerging. And in COVID-19, it's really a call to anticipate the implications of what's happening, even within a crisis, that it's still possible to do that. My next question is, how does the COVID-19 pandemic help us in our assessment of other issues? Well, I think it helps to remind us. It helps to remind us about how difficult it is to anticipate uh, the impacts of developments across different sectors or other issue areas. We've been a bit caught off guard. Um, pandemics has been something that uh, we've had uh, uh, knowledge of. It has been a risk, but it has caught um, uh, us off guard in a number of different ways. Um, But it has then stressed just how important anticipation is to prevent crises and conflicts from expanding, um, but hopefully also from even occurring in the first place. May I ask you to elaborate a bit more on what is the link between anticipation and prevention? Yeah, thank you for that question. the link between those two is really all about time and the idea that really investing early uh, in many different areas, both personal and professional, um, really pays off. But it's difficult to prioritize. Uh, it's really difficult, especially in a policy context when there's so many different competing demands. We're a bit cloudy in the present to think clearly about those issues and how they may evolve in this short-term context. And so this thinking beyond and investing in, in certain areas really requires a concerted effort. 
um, and, and, uh, and time. But the advantages are clear, I would argue. So when investment is made in conflict prevention, these conflicts can either be avoided entirely or mitigated. And that's what makes these investments so powerful. But this anticipation um, and unknownness about the future and how it might unfold really makes us uncomfortable. It's a psychological issue. Anticipating more effectively today so that we can really invest in those prevention efforts and know where to do that. I think that's really the key point there. What are some of the principal concerns related to COVID-19 impacts on the economy and other policy areas? Well, I want to say first that this is obviously a quickly evolving and, and changing context. So this is some, some, some preliminary um, thinking on, on this, but I, I, it is in, in you know, an evolving context. I would say there's, you know, we always point to this high level of connectivity. There is a, an advantage to that. But in COVID, we've suddenly seen that it can be sometimes a disadvantage including in the economic sphere. It leads to a vulnerability. And this reaction to that, this protectionism, this national focus. But the problem there, the paradox there, has been that the response that's required uh, really requires that connection and requires that cooperation. So we see that across a number of different areas. I point in the paper that I've written to both the human security implications of uh, this connection between um, this health sector and the economic sphere, but also the state security implications. So in in terms of human security, that's related to economic insecurity, related to the, the ability for someone to really earn a wage and support their families and have access to a, a social safety system. So in a wide range of countries, those social safety systems might not be there, and that can lead to really um, individuals being at, at risk. If this happens, uh, and we're speaking from the international security sphere, if this happens in a, in a country that is at the risk of violence or in a conflict situation, that can really lead to some, some, some concern. So those pre-existing insecurities might be amplified by this type of situation when someone then can't go to work anymore or is caring for a relative. And I think the, the duration, the severity, and the geographical spread are really the key factors to watch to see how serious this becomes and what countries really will need, will need the, the, the help from the international community and the attention to, to those aspects to avoid that picture that I just painted. The second one is on state security. So uh, confinement period in many countries had ha has really had dire economic consequences. China was one of the first examples of that. So we see data coming out of China about how much that that impact um, was there on supply chains and, 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 uh, and as the virus is spread on, on, on transportation systems or even oil prices around, around the world. The biggest risk on all of this is that while the national economic stimulus plans all must be you know, welcomed and, and, and provided really helpful relief in many countries, uh, the situation makes maybe the international environment more unstable where there will be uh, less inclination for countries for cooperative initiatives, despite this highly interconnected global economy. So it's really a call for to, 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 to maintain that, to really also support initiatives which are addressed by um, different you know, organizations, different cooperation between different countries. And I think one thing across what I've just spoken about is we see um, that has complicated this response and especially this coordinated response at the international level is the speed at which this has come, but then also the complexity at the same time. So I think that's something we need to really watch out for. This is really a unique situation with a global spread. So uh, it has been perhaps uh, going forward, we might see a starting and stopping, a confinement and perhaps again, and it could be impacting um, this economic side 
far longer than, 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 than when we really anticipated at the beginning and uh, really affecting how we do business and interact. So that requires obviously serious reflection by governments about how we can overcome that together. My final question to you, Emily, is may I ask you to please expand a bit more on the issue of interactions at play in the Sahel and in the Arctic based on your publication? Yes, I mean, there are multiple, I would say, just to, to start off uh, different inter- issue interactions. And I, d- I draw on two for each of those cases. So first in the Sahel, I talk about inequality and multilateralism. So inequality is a key concern in the Sahel for many of those countries. We see it in the statistics, both in the basic and enhanced definitions of, of inequality, but it's, you know, on the basic ones in particular, uh, where, where, where I focus. And this is coupled by a number of other, a number of other issues within this particular region. Nomadic and semi-nomadic lifestyle in the Sahel is really an essential fabric of their societies there. And this is also then impacted by, you know, by other factors in uh, the Sahel related to climate change. They're really severely impacted by climate change in the Sahel. Um, and as a consequence, there's radicalization. So we see this interaction of those issues really coming to the fore in the Sahel. Uh, increase in terrorist attacks in, in this region between 2016 and 2020 is really, really high. We see that coupled then with multilateralism and the response to those issues in the Sahel. So there, while there's this great understanding of the link between security and development um, and uh, by, by, by researchers and practitioners and the actors involved, there might not be enough coordination and, and resources available to really tackle those issues. So that means that the actors involved need to work together a bit uh, better to prioritize what's happening there uh, and have a long-term approach, um, not just firefighting and reacting to crises. And so that's, that's why it's so important to think about that. And I use inequality and multilateralism to really focus on that um, and to call for more sustained attention and, and action you know, regarding provision of funding, but also then the coordination between the key players um, and different actors in this region. On the Arctic, um, I talk about geopolitics and the environment. Um, so geopolitics uh, relates to the uh, different actors that are involved, and we see a number of really important players, but many other countries around the world really interested in what's going on there. Uh, so the Arctic Council plays a key role there, but it tries to stay above and uh, outside of the political or military sphere, um, focusing on other areas related to um, search and rescue of the environment and other ones. But there is a high degree of strategic attention in the Arctic right now. And we see that from actors uh, such as China and Russia with their strategies and, and different developments there. Um, and this is coupled with developments on the environmental side. So they are really on the front line of uh, the impact of climate change in the Arctic. Uh, melting of ice leads to new sea routes. And while there's been a bit of a starting and stopping of how much that will change things up there, um, there's also, you know, access to resources that are opening up as well. And that's something that we really have to watch. Those bring challenges, but that brings also opportunities for the communities that live there and the countries, the Arctic nations. And this is important because uh, of this uh, issue that I uh, alluded to earlier about the Arctic Council. We see an absence of governance arrangements, a venue to manage these developments. So there is some debate of whether that should be the Arctic Council or not. Um, but the specific setting um, doesn't really exist to manage some of those more political and security-related issues that are coming up in the Arctic. They're not on the front, uh, but they're coming up. Um, and uh, it's most likely going to be more than one organization. A range of mechanisms are needed to really manage those developments. And I use the issues of the environment and geopolitics to bring out some of those, uh, some of those issues. Thank you, Emily Monroe. Mm-hmm.
Earlier, we spoke with Professor Machiro Tsuroka of Kaio University in Japan. He is a leading expert of Japanese security policy, and we discussed his view of the Indo Pacific. Thank you for joining us, Professor Tsuroka. My first question to you is Can you please tell us how you define the notion of Indo Pacific from historic, geographic, and geopolitical perspectives? The notion of Indo Pacific is relatively new. So, we used to be using mainly Asia Pacific. But uh, given the increasing connectivity between the Asia Pacific region and Indian Ocean region, now we need to think about more broadly. And uh, that is based on the fact that uh, the Asia Pacific peace and security is more and more affected by what takes place in the Indo Indian Ocean region. And the Indian Ocean region is also being affected by what takes place in the Asia Pacific region. So that is why. It's a strategic imperative, I guess, for us to think more broadly about the region. So, so the, this is, in one sense, of course, the Indo Pacific is a geographical concept, but at the same time, it's very much based on the evolution of policy um, context and the reality. So, that's why now we more use the term the Indo Pacific. What are, in your view, the most important challenges facing the Indo Pacific today? First and foremost, the Indo Pacific concept is a mainly a maritime thing. Because、uh, if you look at the map, the Indo Pacific region, yes, of course, the, the, the Eurasian con- continent is there, the Indian, India is there, but、uh, the, as the name suggests, the Indo Pacific concept, very much a maritime、uh, based one. So, the, the maritime security is, is obviously the one of the, the most important areas for Japan to look at, and、uh, particularly the maintaining the fundamental principles regarding the maritime governance, like freedom of navigation, that is very important in terms of protecting sea lines of communication, which is vital for our economic transaction, trade. And、uh, they, they also, for security reasons as well, the maintaining the, the freedom of navigation is critical and in the South China Sea and in East China Sea as well. So, the how to counter challenges to the very principles of freedom of navigation and other related international、uh, law and、uh, norms, that's what we are very much focusing on. So, then how do you see the position of China and how do you think its ambitions as a great power will fit in with the Japanese vision of the Indo Pacific? The Japanese government now is, is, is proposing and pursuing the initiative and vision of a free and open Indo Pacific, FOIP, FOIP. And、uh, it has three pillars so, the fundamental principles and、uh, pursuing prosperity and security and peace and security. And it's a comprehensive vision. It has certain elements of countering challenges, whoever it is, perhaps China. It is a, has an element of countering China, but it's not just that, it's more than that. Because, the, yes, the competitive strategy element of FOIP is there, but at the same time, cooperative strategy element is there as well. So, because the Indo Pacific concept is inherently A open, inclusive idea. And also, the Japan and China are now committed 
to pursue what we call cooperation in third countries. So the infrastructure projects in various countries in the Indo-Pacific region is something that we are now thinking about. Of course, we still don't know what we can really do in that context, but uh, there is a political momentum and a political determination commitment to that. So, so, so this uh, cooperative element is there. So the, I don't think it's fair to say that uh, Japan's uh, freedom, uh, free and open in the Pacific concept is only about countering China. Now we are still very much thinking about various uh, opportunities, including Chinese-Japanese cooperation in, in this wider area as well. So the yes, security, economy, and other things uh, all involved. So, so it's, it's a really comprehensive thing. Now, India is another important actor. Do you see it taking a central role in these dynamics? India is a really important strategic partner for Japan. Uh, not only Prime Minister Abe, but successive prime ministers over the past uh, more than 10 years have been trying to strengthen partnership, the partnership with India. There have been already some result outcomes good outcomes like uh, the joint exercise, military exercises between the self-defense forces of Japan and Indian forces, uh, not only at the, the, in the maritime domain, but also the, the ground force joint training also took place in India. So the, that sort of new development we can see. What is now more needed is that given the fact that the Japanese-Indian strategic partnership had so far been a politically driven process, which is good. But now for us to make this relationship more sustainable, more sus substantial, and for us, to for, for, for us to see this relationship to flourish, then we need a more economic substance. So the more economic engagement, economic transactions between Japan and India, not just trade, but also investment, and how we can start this more sort of a spontaneous, uh, the, the business community driven, sustainable process, how and whether we can start that. I, I think that's a remaining challenge, but I'm not too pessimistic because uh, India is a rising power and uh, not just in terms of economy, but also in foreign security policy terms, India is changing. But uh, we should not have too much expectations because, of course, the notion of using India as a counterweight to China is, is not good for, in the eyes of Indians, of course. So the, still, we need to pay attention to India's tradition of non-alignment, for example, and then explore what we can do together with Indians. And that's going to be a long process. In the Indo-Pacific context, has the U.S. taken a central role or rather played a secondary role under this U.S. presidency? The rules-based international order or liberal international order is under increasing threat, mainly from China and Russia, not from the United States. Because some people tend to argue that or Trump, Mr. Trump is now destroying international order. Yes, there is some element of that. We cannot deny that. But still, in terms of thinking of maintaining rules-based international order, 
then still we need to make a clear distinction between challengers and partners, supporters of those orders. So the, and still, even under Mr. Trump, the United States is still very much should be a partner for us, for Japanese, for Europeans. So the, what we need to do is to encourage Americans to come back to the central stage of international leadership. And it's still possible. I might be too naive or optimistic, but uh, given the fact that we still share a lot more with Americans, values, interests, more with Americans we share than with Chinese or Russians. That, that's still the reality. And for Europeans as well, it's still the reality. So that means that uh, the, we should not uh, give up the United States. And then, but still, in the meantime, while Americans are a bit absent from the central stage of international leadership, then there are more things that uh, Japanese and Europeans should do together. But uh, it's not about ganging up against the United States. It is about encouraging Americans to come back to the central stage of international leadership. Thank you, Professor Tsuroka. That's all we have now for today's episode. Thank you to Ms. Emily Monroe for joining us, along with Professor Michiro Tsuroka. Listen to us again next week and hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. And don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes or follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud. Bye for now.